In Psalm 111, the first two verses we read, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. In the company of the upright and in the assembly, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. And Father, we truly delight in you and in your works. We're here this morning, Father, particularly to look at the works of God in the lives of his people over 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And Father, we know from Scripture that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of Joshua is our God. And Father, as you worked mercifully through the life of Joshua, so you will work through our lives today as we yield to, to you as he was yielded to you. Teach us from the life of this man and from those that served along with him. Father, I pray your blessing throughout this time. We know that wherever your people are gathered together in your name, you are there, you are present, you're empowering. And Father, we stand against the evil one, that he will be bound and his, his minions will be routed, and that your name will be proclaimed not only here in this class, but throughout this Sunday school this morning and in the services of this day. We ask you to glorify yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at the uh, outline, we have covered the first few points there. Uh, we've looked at Joshua's challenge to the seven and a half tribes to get about occupying and settling the land that belonged to them. And, and we noted that during that time, they moved the headquarters from Gilgal down near Jericho all the way up the escarpment and into the highlands at Shiloh. And on your map, which I gave to you, you'll notice that Shiloh is located in the uh, southeast corner of the territory of Ephraim. They were to survey the land, and they did survey the land, in order for it to be then distributed into seven equal portions because there were seven tribes that hadn't yet received their particular portion. And that would happen then during the, uh, what we read about in the 18th chapter of Joshua. The land was distributed by the casting of lots. But it was not just like, you know, throwing dice or something. Uh, the scripture doesn't say how the lots were cast. But as we'll discover even today in, in the passage as we read, it was a God-ordained and God-guided selection of the pieces of territory that would belong to each tribe. And in, under point N there of your outline, the allocation of the land to the remaining tribes we looked at the fact that the tribe of Simeon, and, and you can see this again if you, we'll be using this map again, so if you have it, you might want to uh, pull it out, that the tribe of Simeon was given territory down in the southern end of the tribal territory of Judah, because we read in the scripture that Judah had too much land. And so Simeon was given a territory in the south central portion of the uh, land originally given to the tribe of Judah. And then you'll notice that the tribes of Benjamin and Dan are sandwiched in the middle there, right between Judah and Ephraim, in, in, in kind of a long, narrow tribal territory there. And then the half-tribe of Manasseh, you'll notice, receives a fairly large piece of land up there, which includes, you, you see this bump up here, this, this bump sticking up here? That's Mount Carmel, or Carmel, however you want to call it is a mountain that runs right out there. And if you go to modern Israel today, just to the north side of that bump is the city of Haifa. 
which is the major port in, um, in Israel today. And that, that's the territory of Manasseh. And then we notice that Asher, Issachar, Zebulon, and Naphtali received the territory that was uh, mostly what we would today call Galilee. Galilee was given to, to those particular tribes. And, and we read the passage in Matthew that tells us that it would be in Zebulon and Naphtali that the light would shine forth because that was the territory, of course, in which Christ carried out much of his ministry. Uh, he grew up in Nazareth, which was basically in the territory of Zebulon, and he carried out most of his ministry or much of his ministry in Galilee, particularly around the lake, which was in the territory of Naphtali. Capernaum. Jesus was at Capernaum more than one time, and that's located on the northern and slightly western side of the lake there in the territory of Naphtali. So those are the points that we have already talked about. Today I would like for us to turn to the 19th chapter of Joshua, and I'd like to read the last three verses of the 19th chapter, verse 49 through 51. We read that when they finished apportioning the land for inheritance by its borders, the sons of Israel gave an inheritance in their midst to Joshua, the son of Nun. In accordance with the command of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. So he built the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances which Eleazar the priest and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel, distributed by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. Last class, uh, we were looking at what God had done through this man Joshua in creating a man of tremendous character. And we were looking specifically at the fact that he was a man whose character displayed no greed. He was not a man of greed because he waited until all of the tribes except, of course, Levi, but Levi was going to be given certain cities, so that didn't really play a role in this whole thing. After the 12 tribes had already been all given their land, then the scripture tells us Joshua asked for his piece of land. And he didn't ask for an important place. He, he asked for what is really scripturally an insignificant place. And if you've ever been there and seen Timnasera, you'll notice why it's insignificant. It's a rocky, barren hill today. It, it doesn't seem to have any particular significance. It, of course, was located in the territory that, was that belonged to the tribe of Ephraim there. And the city was one, or a town actually, at very best, it was, was a town, was one that was located in an area that was not on a major trade route. The land there is very modestly fertile. It's, it's, it's just not one of the most chosen pieces of the land of Canaan. But he was displaying whether this was simply a display of the natural character of Joshua, which, which I believe it was, but it was also possibly calculated by him too. How do I display to this people the nature of the God whom I serve? Well, I sure don't display it by being grasping and greedy. And so he could have asked for the best portion of the land because historically, I mean, you go down through the pages of history and you look at the great conquerors of history and almost without exception, they always choose the choice piece of land, the, the greatest city, whatever it is, the greatest piece of the booty for themselves. It reminds me of captains, well, of, of privateers. You go back into the days of the wooden warship and privateers, when they went out to uh, carry out their duty, 
the owner of the ship always got the biggest portion, the captain got the second biggest portion, and the first mate got the third biggest portion, and then they divided some small little piece amongst all the crewmen you know, who were on this privateer. And that's the normal human way of looking at things. The leader should get the biggest, the leader should get the best. But Joshua wanted to demonstrate the opposite. And so he became a powerful example. He didn't want anybody to say, yeah, your, your family has this wonderful place because Joshua took the best for himself. No, that would not be true for Joshua. And he would be an example to Israel, and he is an example to us today. Joshua and Moses both displayed a very different attitude. They did not aspire to leadership in the first place. Neither Moses nor Joshua stood up there and said, me, Lord, me, pick me as leader of this land. No, they didn't want it. You know, they, they, they drew away from it. And yet when God picked them, they served for the good of the people with no thought for self-aggrandizement or personal profit. How unlike human nature. And in so doing, they demonstrated what I felt when I was, when I was studying this uh, the passage in, in Philippians chapter 2 just, just came to my mind as this being an example of the, the truth of Philippians chapter 2. L let me just read. It's a familiar passage to you, but you know, sometimes I think we get away from what the scripture tells us. There, there is a tendency throughout the history of the church to proclaim Christ and yet not to live in accordance with the teaching of scripture. Uh, today, or in recent American history, they, they call it the holiness movement. The holiness movement where, where people want to actually obey the scripture as if that's some kind of an unusual thing. Uh, actually, it is historically unusual, but, but it's biblical. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness. You probably have had the same problem I've had and, and down through the history of my life. I, you know, we have a tendency to compare others with ourselves and always kind of Put them down a few steps from where we are. Well, maybe not in every case. There are sometimes we look up to people, of course. But, but this is more the human tendency. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This doesn't mean be a busybody, of course, but it means to genuinely care for others' needs and to reach out and minister to them as we are able to do so. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form, the very essence of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, literally to be held on to. You know, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses like to say, you know, that he wasn't trying to grasp up to be God, but the real meaning here is to, to not hold on to. He already had it, but it wasn't a thing he would hold on to. He would empty himself taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance of, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And, and this is what Joshua in a, in a small way is symbolizing. By asking for the least, he is, he is not exalting himself, he's humbling himself. Not nearly, of course, to the extent that Christ did in coming down from heaven at the right hand of God and taking on the form of vile man, but it, it's in that direction. Therefore, in verse 9, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How does that fit with the politically correct doctrine that some of our liberal brothers, I, I don't use the word brother in the sense of being brothers in Christ, but humans, who, who, who preach that, you know, as long as you're a, a pretty good guy and you're not an Adolf Hitler or a Joseph Stalin or somebody, uh, you're going to get there. And so will the Buddhists and so will the Hindus and so will the, will the Muslims. They'll all get there too as long as they're reasonably faithful to what they believe. How does that fit with this? No, this, this says every knee shall bow to Jesus. It doesn't say every Christian knee. Every knee and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is the Lord, not Muhammad, you know, not Buddha, but that Jesus is Lord. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Demonstrate your salvation. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And then Paul meddles around a little bit more. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's difficult. You may not have noticed, but I have noticed that it's very, very difficult. It's, it's so easy to grumble and, and dispute and say, well, you shouldn't tell me to do that. I mean, after all, you do it better than I do it or, you know, whatever. And, and it's, by, it's our nature. Look at Israel. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Whack. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Whack. You know, it's, it's just a history of grumbling whacks. <laughs> that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. If that doesn't describe our day, I don't know what it describes. We are living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, it's always been true, but it seems to be more crooked and more perverse today from the top down, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I didn't run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge, rejoice in the same manner and share your joy with me. When you read a passage like that, you think, well, if I got to stick with that passage until I get it right, <laughs> I won't be moving on anytime real soon. You know. and, and there are so many passages like that in Scripture. And, and we can understand then why it is many want to have a faith where they profess a faith and, and they claim to believe in God and believe in Jesus, but they aren't bound by living according to the words of Jesus because it's hard to do. And you can't do it in your own strength. So Joshua demonstrates that. And we go on and see this as we look at the very name Timoneth Sarah. Because that name, which is the name of the hill and the little village up there that he occupied, means the portion remaining. That's the meaning of the word the portion remaining. So he's asking for the portion remaining. I, I think it's very probable that Joshua is simply la asking for the allotment of land that no other Ephraimite has chosen up to this moment. They've seen all other areas in Ephraim as more valuable than this one, and so nobody had picked Timnasera. What that means is, of course, that it is the runt of the litter, so to speak. At least that's the way they viewed it. That it was, you know, no, no place of any importance. Why do we want it? I, I don't think it was a town of much consequence at all. It was passed over by all the other Ephraimites because there were other sites that were obviously more favorable. 
Timnasera was located 18 miles northwest of Jerusalem. On the top of a relatively rocky hill, it is only mentioned two times in Scripture. This is how part important it is. It's mentioned twice in Scripture. This is one of them right here. And the other is when Joshua dies in the 24th chapter. So other than related to Joshua choosing it and Joshua dying, being the Joshua from Timnasera, there is no other scriptural reference to this town. That's how important it was. And I wasn't very impressed when I saw it. <laughs> there's, no, there's no town there now. It's just a sloping hill and it's just covered with rocks. It wasn't even anything but grass growing on it when I saw it. So we could say to Joshua, not a good choice, Joshua, but he was demonstrating to the people a godly character. And do you know what? I think God blessed him as he lived in that place. And he profited in that place probably more than others who picked what they thought were better places. At the end of verse 50, we're told that Joshua built the city and settled in it. Well, there already was a town there. So I think what is being referred to here is that he rebuilt the city, expanded the city, refurbished it. It was probably damaged. It was probably run down. It may have been battle-worn, battle-damaged. We don't know. But whatever it was, he, he put it in order for his own family, his own clan. Just, just think about that. You know, once they're all settled down and they're living in the land and people have to stop and think, now where did Joshua go? Oh, can't even think of the name of the place. Oh, the portion remaining. Yes, that's where he went. Yeah, he wasn't living in some profound uh, city. He wasn't living in Hatzor or, or you know, one of the great cities that was captured. He was living in the little dinky village of Timnasera. In the 51st verse of this passage, we find a little bit further uh, enlightenment as to exactly where the decisions were made giving out the allotment of land. We know from what we've read before that five tribes received their allotment while Joshua was headquartered at Gilgal. Then they moved up the hill to Shiloh, and the remaining tribes received their allotment at Shiloh. But this passage tells us a little bit more detail. It tells us that the, that the lots were cast at the doorway to the tabernacle. What, the implication of that is that God superintended, God supervised. It was a God-directed division of the land. What that would mean, of course, is if the tribes had a bellyache about the land they had, they had to take their bellyache to God because it was his decision. Well, let's move into the 20, 20th chapter. In fact, let's read the 20th chapter. It's a short chapter. Don, just, I'm trying to remember if Kitnath Sarah had a view of the coastal plain. Do you recall at all? I'm not sure, but if I remember right, I don't remember that it did. But we didn't go to the top, remember? Yeah, well, I remember sitting on the hillside here. That, that somehow sticks in my crop. The reason I'm thinking of that, you know, given the leadership role that that man had, just the practical slant might have been that, you know, being people weary, this was nice to just have a place that wouldn't be, not to, not to obscure the point you're making at all. Mm -hmm. But uh, here's, here's a guy that uh, just needs to back off and be a little obscure. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, it, we didn't get to the very top, so I'm not sure how far he could see, but from where we were, I, it seems to me there were just hills around that was all we could see. At, like you, it, the, the view just sticks in my mind. I don't know exactly why. Chapter 20, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses. 
that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there, and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. And he shall flee to one of these cities, and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city, and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, and they shall take him into the city to them, and give him a place, so that he may dwell among them. Now if the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hands, because he struck his neighbor without premeditation, and did not, ha and did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city, until he stands before the congregation for judgment, until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the manslayer shall, shall return to his own city, to his own house, to the city from which he fled. So they set apart <coughs> Kedesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they designated Bezer in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel and for the stranger who sojourned among them, that whoever kills a person unintentionally may flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stands before the congregation. While Israel was still in the wilderness before they had come to carry out the conquest, a God had commanded through Moses what the basic legal system was to be for, for the people of Israel. In the 35th chapter of Numbers, we find record there of the God-ordained plan by which those who inadvertently killed someone else could find some justice. God was the one who established the cities of refuge. If we turn to the 35th chapter of Numbers, let me read beginning at verse 9, Numbers 35, 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. And the cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger, so that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. And the cities which you are to give shall be your six cities of refuge. And you shall get three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan, there to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the sons of Israel and for the alien and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. Now, of course, God, long before Israel ever got to the place of invading any place, God well knew that Israel was going to conquer Transjordan before they conquered the land of Canaan. And therefore, he called for three cities to be set up on the east side of the Jordan and three cities to be set up on the west side of the Jordan. Now, when you look at your map, you will see that all the black dots are the cities that are given to the Levites. Six of those cities given to the Levites are marked with a little cross. And, and you'll find that there are six beginning way up here in the north in Naphtali, Kedesh. And as you come south, there are three of them, more or less equally spaced in Canaan. And then over on the um, east side, there were three. They're not so equally spaced, but there are three cities, one in each of the tribes, one from half-tribe of Manasseh in the north, 
one for um, Gad in the middle, and one for Reuben in the south. And these are going to be the cities to which they would flee. Now, the Lord, through Moses, had already designated the cities in the east. If you look at the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy, fourth chapter of Deuteronomy, if we look at verse 41, then Moses set apart three cities across the Jordan to the east, that a manslayer might flee there, who unintentionally slew his neighbor without having enmity toward him in time past. And by fleeing to one of these cities he might live, Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau for the Reubenites, Ramoth and Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. So this was already long done before Joshua came to power, before Joshua led Israel. The cities of refuge as a concept and as exact cities for those three tribes had already been named by Moses. God then, in, in the passages we have read, and specifically in this passage we're looking at today in the 20th chapter of Joshua, God spelled out exactly how this system was to work. And you'll notice in the passages we read, it always said that it was to be used only for those who had unintentionally slayed another human being. In other words, it was unintentional homicide. And, and in this passage, in verses 4 through 6 in, in um, Joshua chapter 20, God reiterated exactly how the elders were to deal with the situation. You know, this guy comes breathly run, bre breathlessly running up to the city after having fled uh, from the site of the accident, knowing that possibly the blood avenger was, uh, was going to be on his, uh, on his trail, that he would flee to that particular city, and the elders knew exactly what they were supposed to do. There was to be an initial court of inquiry right smack in the gateway of the city immediately. And that court of inquiry was to be what was to discover whether or not there was grounds to believe that this person had inadvertently killed the other person. If there were no grounds to support his, his you know, he says, yeah, it was an accident, and yet there's evidence to indicate it wasn't an accident, they weren't to let him in the city. But if there was sufficient evidence to indicate that, yes, it was an accident, uh, they would let him in the city if they deemed that his plea had merit. Then he was to remain inside the city uh, for a time until they held a full-fledged trial. And the, the wording indicates that the trial was to be a public assembly of the whole city. They were to come out and listen to the two sides of the argument. And then, according to the decision of the trial, he would either be allowed to stay in the city or he'd be kicked out of the city. And, of course, he's kicked out of the city. He has to face the blood avenger. If they rule that, uh, yes, it was an accidental uh, killing, it was manslaughter, it was not uh, murder, then he would be allowed to remain inside the city. He would be acquitted, in other words, of premeditated murder. But you'll notice how long he was to live inside the city if he were allowed to live in the city until the death of the high priest at the time. Well, think about that for a minute, you know. Was the high priest uh, who was put in office fairly elderly when he was put in office or was he fairly young? How long it had been since he had been put into office? There were a lot of factors to think about here. So the question is, why was there this requirement? Why didn't God just say, uh, he had to stay in the city for five years. He had to stay in the city for 10 years. Or he had to stay in the city for 20 years. Why does God use the term 
the limitation of until the death of the high priest. Well, I have postulated there, if you'll notice on point P4, what seem to be four reasons for this particular statement. First, is that it provided a kind of a statute of limitations so that the fugitive would not be facing a life sentence in this foreign city where he had no family, he'd never, probably never been there before, he's a totally new community, what was he going to do? Maybe he left his career behind, uh, his, his herds behind, his crops behind, wh whatever was the case. And so what this did was give him hope, hope that he could return. And of course, if the high priest was kind of getting on in years, had been in office for quite a while, he could hope that it would be sooner rather than later. Secondly, it provided time for ill feelings to subside, for the blood avenger and other members of the family to, to view it more objectively and to realize the guy didn't really mean to kill your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, whoever was killed, but, but it was an accident. You know, you, you've probably all seen situations or known of situations where someone has harmed another person totally accidentally, but the people who are related to the person harmed get angry at the person who did it, even though it was totally unintentional. And, and maybe it wasn't even the result of negligence. It was just a pure accident. It, it's just a natural tendency. So this gives time for those feelings to subside. So when he does return, he doesn't have to keep looking over his shoulder, wondering if they're going to get him anyway or at least having bad relationships with that family. Thirdly, if you think about the fact that you might be stuck in a foreign city for a very long time, it might cause you to be a little bit more careful that you don't do anything that's going to be harmful to another person. You're not going to do anything that's going to result in the death of another person, accidental or whatever. Just be more careful. It's, it's sort of like in our society today, we have to be very careful about what we do because you can be sued for almost anything. And, you know, who wants that? And, and so we have to be, hopefully, very, very careful in all that we do. I mean, the high priest might live for a very long time. In fact, he might un outlive you if you're the person who fled to the city. So you spend the rest of your life there. But I think most importantly, and most specifically why God chose this particular factor to be the limiting factor was that it would provide or illustrate the concept of propitiation. Let, let's turn again to the 35th chapter of Numbers. The last passage in, in, in the chapter, beginning at verse 39. Numbers 35, 29. And these things shall be for a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generation in all your dwellings. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. As I think about that, I, I thought we, we watched a little bit of a documentary last night, and it, it talked about the fact that in a, one of the particular states, if you could get a certain amount of money together, you could use that money to buy a pardon in that state from the state penitentiary, even if you were a murderer. For a certain amount of money, you could buy a pardon and be freed, even if you were a murderer and on a life sentence. Well, of course, that's not supposed to happen in our society either. But it says here, you cannot ransom such a person. You cannot use money to buy that person's freedom. He must die. 
you shall not take ransom for him who has fled to the city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. And you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. And that is the reason the only ransom for a manslayer, for a murderer, was his own blood. But in the case of somebody who has accidentally killed someone and fled into the city of refuge, that blood has been shed on the land. But he is not to shed his blood if it was accidental. He is to remain in the city. So how is there expiation? How is there propitiation? The propitiation comes in the death of the high priest. When he dies, his blood takes care of that blood which had been shed on the land accidentally by the persons in the cities of refuge. Now is that a picture of Christ or what is it? That is a further illustration of how the high priest stood as a type of Christ. And how Christ would come after the order of Melchizedek. Superior order, of course, to the Aaronic priesthood. But nevertheless, the high priest was a type of Christ in this and in many other ways. The cities of refuge uh, that are listed in, in verses 7 and 8 here of Joshua 20 as I said to you, are designated on the map, and you can see them there. They were spread in two north-south lines, parallel to the Jordan Valley. And the reason for the spacing is so that they would be relatively close to anybody living at any particular place within the, the land, within the territory. Probably no more than one or at very maximum two days distance from the city. A person could actually jog through the countryside or ride an animal or whatever, and get to a city of refuge within one or two days. That's how closely they were spaced. These cities served as an example of the justice and the mercy of God. There are so many people I've heard criticize the Old Testament that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God, always looking for opportunities to strike people dead. Well, that comes from a very shallow reading of the Old Testament because the mercy and justice of God just flows from every page. And this is a powerful example of both His justice and His mercy. Because, you see, the blood is expiated even if the person flees to the city of refuge and does not pay with his own blood. It is nevertheless expiated. And, and thus the justice of God is done, and yet mercy is shown because the person did not intend to kill this person. It was an accident, and therefore he is allowed. What happened Can't. to the person, that person that didn't mean to murder somebody if he could not, for some reason, injuries or mm. handicaps or whatever, make it to that city? Well, no system is perfect, right, in, in Earth. <laughs> I think what would happen in that case that, you know, without any illustration of it in the Scripture, but, you know, my logic would say that his family or his friends would try to get him there somehow. But, you know, if it, it, there probably were times when the Avenger caught up with him before he got there. The Scripture does not say that if the Avenger of blood catches such a person and kills him, that then he is therefore guilty because the person had done it accidentally. It does, doesn't say that. Is the Avenger of blood somebody from the family of the person who was killed or uh, somebody appointed for that town or something? It usually was a member of the clan. 
of the family. You know, there, there's no stated process in Scripture by which a, an avenger was chosen. But we can assume probably that it was, um, that, that in many cases it could have been someone appointed by the village or by the town to be the official avenger of blood. I, I, you know, I can hardly imagine just anybody saying, oh, a guy killed my, my cousin, I'm going to go out and kill him because not everybody had it in him to slay somebody else no matter what. So I suppose it would have to be somebody who felt that that was his duty for many of the peoples of that particular day. There was no police force as such or system of courts as such uh, established in these societies. They were rural societies. Um, they were not highly politicized societies. And therefore, a lot of it was carried out according to clan and tribal law. And so this is ways by which God goes across tribal law and clan law and tries to provide a way of, uh, of demonstrating his mercy and bringing a measure of justice to his people. But those are good questions. And yeah, I don't think from the scripture you can answer them. It almost sounds like the avenger of blood was more of a judge than he was a, uh, a murderer. <laughs> well, yes, right, right. He was, he was carrying out a judgment. And, of course, the problem was, generally speaking, the person who, who killed the other person wouldn't necessarily have stood trial before the avenger of blood. I mean, it would just be assumed, you've killed this man, therefore you must die. But in this case, when you get to the seat of refuge, there's actually... A court, of inquisition, uh, a court of inquiry, and then a trial to determine whether the person, liter you know, is, whether it was accidental or not, premeditated or not. And if it was premeditated, they fed you to the avenger. So another quick question, I'm sorry to interrupt. Somebody killed somebody in the city of refuge. They go to another city of refuge? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point because there are, there are several kinds of options we could think of, aren't there? And the Bible does not speak to that. And we have no other record of how these people function other than the biblical record. Yes, we have Josephus, but Josephus basically simply parallels the Old Testament. He throws in a few little insights here and there or, or uh, traditions here and there, but he does not answer these questions either. So we have no way of knowing. But you could assume that probably that would be true. Uh, unless, of course, he could go to the elders of his own city and, and ask for an inquisition right there. <laughs> well, first of all, we have to remember the cities of refuge were Levitical cities. So these were cities that were inhabited by the Levites. That didn't mean Levites never sinned, nor that no Levite ever killed another Levite. But hopefully it would be less likely. I think what I'd like to do, given the hour, is come back to this because there's, there's a further study relative to the word refuge as it is in the Hebrew and how it is exhibited prior to this and how God is truly our refuge. And I'd like to spend a few minutes doing that and I don't have enough time so I think we'll, we'll start with that next week.